Hey, welcome everyone to I So Appreciate You, an honest, raw, and sometimes funny podcast about work, community, life, and all the other stuff we juggle. Hi, I'm Pohua. And I'm Nadej, and we're colleagues at the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundation. In addition to that, we're friends. And so when we talk, our conversations can run the gamut. We can start talking about board meetings and governance procedures. We can get into mother-daughter dynamics, and then we can be like, where are we going to dinner tonight? I prefer that conversation. And so we thought that maybe some of you would like to join us in conversation. So here we are with I So Appreciate You. Welcome to I So Appreciate You. I'm Pahua Yang Hoffman. And I'm Nadej Souvenir. In this week's episode, we're merging the personal with the professional. We'll be exploring health and work, specifically talking about the two sides of caregiving, giving the care and also receiving it. Yes. And we're all so excited, so excited to welcome our first guest to the show, Luana Ojala, an attorney, caregiver, and community leader. So Nadej, one statistic that I read was that 66% of caregivers are women and that this statistic actually hasn't changed over a number of years. So my, my question to you and the question to our listeners is what happens when it's one of us who needs the care? You know, it's a good question. And even though I'm going through it literally right now, I still don't know if I actually have the answer to it. To, to accepting the care? Yeah, maybe yeah. accepting the care, feeling like I, I should, um, that I need the care. Yeah. And actually, you know, I should probably back up a little bit because mm-hmm. our listeners are probably like, what on earth is she talking about and what care does she yeah. need? Um, so not that long ago, really not that long ago, um, I was diagnosed with uh, stage zero breast cancer, um, ductal carcinoma in situ. Wait, before I keep going on a red flag here. Yeah. I am not a doctor. Yeah. I am not a medical professional. Right. I will probably say something wrong. Yeah. And you might be listening and be like, wait a minute, that's not what it is. Listen, I'm a person going through some stuff. So I will tell you what I know or what I think I know. But if it's totally wrong, just ignore me and then come back when I'm saying something that doesn't sound remotely medical. I think everybody will understand. Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> but um, the, yes, ductal carcinoma in situ, DCIS, mm-hmm. um, basically means cancer inside the duct of the breast. And apparently, this is what um, Vicky, who was the one who called me and informed me about this, said that years ago, they didn't even actually consider this breast cancer. What? Like it was so far in the beginning of the process and, and, you know, maybe screening, I don't know what, but like this wouldn't have been um, something that they considered cancer. Obviously that's not the case now. And that's probably why it's stage zero because stage one was already claimed. And yeah, it was just a few months ago. And so what I decided to do as a result of that for a number of reasons, which you know, I can share or not share is I ultimately ended up having a bilateral uh, mastectomy and reconstruction. And just in case those words don't mean anything, I basically removed both my breasts. Okay. I want to talk about that because you've (laughs) been- Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I do. I do want to talk about it. And I know you've been already talking about this because if you follow Nadej on social media, Instagram Instagram in particular- Um, she's sharing a whole lot there. And I want to talk about like, what was that thought process? Because it also doesn't surprise me because you're such a, um, methodical person and you're so intentional about every decision you make that when you came to this decision that you were going to have this double mastectomy, I thought, 
Well, in one hand, yes, that sounds very Nadej. But on the other hand, this is huge. So walk us through that. Ooh, walk, walk us through the decision. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting thing when, uh, when, you, when somebody says to you, you have a cancer. Yeah. I think that's the quote. And so, you know, right away, my brain's like, all right, well, then get it out of my body. Right. Like, just take it all. Like, take whatever you need. So yeah. <laughs> I don't have to revisit this conversation again. Especially when again. it's stage zero. You're right. like, okay, well, good. I don't want to good. come back. Yeah. Excellent. Perfect. But the reality is, um, you know, had lots of conversations. There were really a lot of options kind of available to me. I mean, that's the privilege I have is that I found it super early. Yeah. And so, you know, I had a number of choices, but the choice I made, which... Um, I think somebody referred to as the nuclear option. Yes. That's why it was just so <laughs> jarring to me how we got there so quickly. Uh, was really based on on knowing myself and, mm. and knowing what I needed to be the most me on the other side of that surgery. Wow. And so one of the very first things I said to my surgeon was, it is important for me to factor in the cosmetic appearance on the other side of this mm. as we think about what's going to happen to me. Yeah. Because in my mind, I couldn't conceive, and like every woman is different. So there's going to be people listening sure. here who have done, made different choices. But in my mind, I was like, I, I can't, I know how stressed out I get during hormonal shifts. And sometimes one is just doing a thing and the other one's not doing the same thing. <laughs> um, and I just thought, nope, I can't have that be a permanent state. So... That's how we know you came to that decision. But tell me about the decision to make it public. So public. Yeah. So I knew you were going to ask me this, so I actually really thought about it. And it actually turns out it was kind of a three-step process. I love that you have a three-step process it, about this. I didn't okay. know it was three steps <laughs> until I you know, went back and revisited you know, what the heck I was thinking over the weeks. But you know, the day after I got my diagnosis... Mm -hmm. I, I posted, I think, on social media, kind of a like, here's some stats about breast cancer. And unfortunately, I've now joined the ranks. You know, I had my first mammogram this year. Like, ladies, people, go get your mammograms. Yeah. Like, it was really just like, go get yourselves checked out. And was this a routine mammogram for you? I mean, it was routine, and it was literally the first one I'd ever done. What? Okay. <laughs> so I was just like, please go. Don't yeah. stop. Don't look at what you're doing. Just Get, get the girls checked and yeah. figure it out. Um, and so that was the first share that I had. And I didn't, I didn't know at that moment that I was going to continue to talk about the experience. Yeah. I, I hadn't planned on that. And it was in a conversation with a colleague and a colleague who had gone through a breast cancer experience that what I realized was, and this was this weird, like I was wearing my you know, leader hat. If somebody on my team... Mm. was going through something that is this emotionally, you know, heavy yeah. and physically taxing and, you know, all of this. Like, mm -hmm. I would want to do, I would want to know enough to be able to do everything I could do to support them. Yes. And so I realized, wait a second. If I would want them to tell me so that I could help them, yeah. then I have to model the behavior that I think is the is is the behavior I want to see and so that's when I started telling people at work really mm. like in some ways casually I'm sure some people were like did you just drop at the top of this meeting well you kind of <laughs> did 
It kind of did. Right. But, you know, the reality, it's not a stigma. Like, yeah. it happens. And I, I mean, don't know why that is, right? Why don't we talk about this more freely? Well, we don't. So when you did, it felt odd, but at the same time, I think welcomed. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if I had been playing basketball and broke my leg and said, hey, guys, I got to go, you know, get some whatever and get my leg in a cast and I'll be rolling in with the little cart thing. Yeah. Like, nobody would have thought that was weird. Like, nobody would have thought me talking about that particular medical mm. experience was bizarre. And so I just was like, all right, I got to make this not bizarre because like, it's just happening to right, me. Right. And then I got to the third point. So that was kind of being public with, with colleagues. So, and, so and go back. One was. One was like, get your mammograms. Yes, like, right. Okay. Do it. Yep. Um, two was being really open in a professional setting very quickly. Yeah. To kind of create that culture where to, we can talk about this yeah. and model it. Okay. And then, you know, I think the third thing that you're talking about, you know, sending folks to my Instagram is like really chronicling my experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason I did that is because, well, you know that like when I'm trying to find something, I'm all over the Google, right? Yeah. And I can pretty much, if it exists, I will find it. I know this about you, yes. (laughs) And it was really difficult for me to find somebody who looked like me who felt like me going through this experience. Like mm. I would I would pull up searches. I would be like, you know, bilateral mastectomy scars. What do they look like? And the images were all white women. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's not informative to me because my skin doesn't bruise that way or do right. that thing or whatever. Our scars show up Are, differently. Correct. And, yeah. and, you know, so it's just, and then I would actually put it in the search and then say black and it still wouldn't like fundamentally change the results Mm. and then I stumbled across blogs and you know other people sharing their journeys but still it like I didn't see me yeah and so I just kind of thought okay maybe I'm the me that I'm supposed to be and I'm supposed to be out there maybe you're the one you're looking for yeah right (laughs) maybe I'm looking for myself yeah and and so I just kind of like tiptoed into it <laughs> with a, I think it was an Instagram post where I was like, on this date, like mm-hmm. I'm going to lose my boobs. I said it more articulate. It was probably pretty or something, but, and, and kept going from that point and, you know, started by mostly talking about feelings. Um, but, you know, getting to the point where I, I, now my boobs exist on the interwebs in the universe forever and ever and ever. How did it feel? Because to us, as as someone who was following and still following you on Instagram in this journey, it felt very real, very raw, because like you said, you talked about not only the procedure, but you talked about your feelings about it. And you also expanded on like your thoughts about the loss, right? The loss of a feeling, um, the loss of just who, not who you were, but just the, just the, your physical self. But, but like walk us through that. Like, how did it feel to share? You know, in some ways it was, um, it's super cathartic. Yeah. I always say that word wrong, but I think I said it right no, I then. Think you, said it. <laughs> <laughs> you know how we all have those words. That's yes. one of my words. Yes. Um, so is mastectomy. I always have to think about that word when I say it, which is really difficult given what I'm going through right now. But anyway, <laughs> um, there's a release that comes mm. with with sharing it and being open and not sort of internalizing it, at least for me. Yeah. And sort of, it's almost like I've released it out in the universe. So the power that it has over me is not as heavy and unsupported. Yeah. 
Um, and the other thing that happened almost immediately is so many people I know reached out to me and shared their experiences. Which they probably weren't as public about? I, I You know, I don't no, know that I know. necessarily knew all of them yeah. when they went through it, but I didn't know that they had been through breast cancer mm. in any way right. until I said it out loud, and then I was getting these messages, and they were sharing, and, you know, including a couple of people who are basically going through this experience, like, more or less simultaneously with me. Wow. Which just, you know... Which they wouldn't have set, talked to you about if you they hadn't known, because how would they know, right? I mean, I would imagine right. that. You know, I don't right. know, but... Um, it, what I just really realized is, you know, there's that stat. I think it's one in eight women um, or women have a one in eight chance of getting breast cancer. The average woman, you know, provided you don't have. I mean, that's a lot of women. That's like if you actually think about that, like if if we're standing in a group of folks and mm. like that doesn't even include like anyone can get breast cancer. But we're really talking about, you know, women at this moment, like you could be standing in a room and not know yeah. that like half the women in that room have had an experience. Why do you think we don't talk about it? You know, so many reasons. Like I think that, you know, I think this was one of the things I alluded to in one of my posts. There is such a, like women's bodies, yeah. the, the things that make us, you know, female and I, you know, recognizing the you know different genders and I recognize I'm being super binary but this is the experience I'm living right now um have always been super taboo mm -hmm. I mean yeah think about the fact that I now have two or three posts on Instagram with my bare breast now but it's okay because I don't have any nipples wow like how messed up is that yeah now that that's okay now. Right. It doesn't get flagged. It doesn't get flagged because I am I am missing the scandalous part of being a lady. Yeah. <laughs> what? Wow. And so I think that like that's part of it. I also think that there is um there are cultural norms about what you do and you don't say, you know, that's a family. Mm. We don't talk about that here. Or um, you know, expectations of how you're supposed to show up, like if you're supposed to be a strong woman, if mm. you're supposed right. to be the caregiver, yeah. like you can't need the help and you can't be weak. And, you know, right. I mean, I just, I think about, you can compare it in some ways to when somebody's got a pregnancy announcement and some yeah. people, and they wait so long, not because they're, they're concerned about the pregnancy because they're like, I don't want people at work to stop to giving me different. work or treat me different yeah. or take me off that really great project that I want to be on. And like, which I, does happen, it, has happened. It absolutely yeah. has happened. And I won't pretend that despite the fact that we work at a really great place, right. some of those thoughts didn't cross my, like they absolutely yeah. crossed my mind that like, oh goodness, I gotta be gone for like a while. Yeah. Like totally gone. What if they notice that like they can do it without me? Like then what? Well, we couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about you re-entering, you know, coming back to work. Um, but let's go back to that original, you know, that stat that I, I mentioned at the top of this segment uh, about women being mostly the caregivers and, and how do we re how do we allow ourselves to receive care? Um, and I know you have an amazing husband. And, He's pretty great. Yeah. And, and you have your daughter. And I just like, what was that like to be the one receiving care? Did it? What were some of the surprises for you? 
that it's really hard. Yeah. You know, when you fancy yourself a relatively independent person. I know. That's why I asked because you are, you know, you're a take charge and get things done person. Yeah. Like it's, um, it's hard. It's, and like at moments it can truly be demoralizing. And, you know, and I also felt like a burden. Like, I felt like an active burden. Like, well, you can't go do that because you need to be around if I need some help. And um, it's a thing you have to get over. Yeah. But it's still it's still a hard thing. All right. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the black box. <laughs> Tell people what that means. Uh, I think this is what I said to people um, in my first week back. So I was I was out um, after my surgery for four weeks and. This is a thank you and also to my colleagues because everybody was super great about keeping me disconnected because everybody knew that I wouldn't be able to resist popping into my email. They didn't send me emails. So for four weeks, we did not. the we world of the good. foundation went back and forth and I had no idea. And then, you know, I came back on my first day and I had a check-in with someone and they said, well, you know, what can I tell you? And I said, I literally don't know. Like, I don't know what has been happening for four weeks. And so it's not the same as being a new person. Yeah. And it's not the same as, like, you know, stepping into, like, a new project or anything. It's like, normally I know so much. And all of a sudden I've been, like, fully untethered. Right. And just have to, like, somehow figure out how to, like, get back on the train that is moving And for those who don't know, the nature of Nadezh's job is she's got her hands in everything. I mean, you you basically (laughs) are our chief operating officer, so you you were involved in everything. And I think it it must have felt weird to just all of a sudden have, like, communication get cut off and then you coming back in and going, where is everything? It absolutely was. But, I mean, I'm thankful for it. Because the reality is, had I seen an email, had I whatever, my instinct would have been to try to call somebody or do something. And the reality is my body needed me to be watching all those episodes of Top Chef or, <laughs> or you know, um, America's Next Top Model. Because, like, I just didn't have the mental wherewithal yeah. to be my best self. And I actually super appreciate that everybody knew that for me forced you you forced me to, to slow take down. that time Nadesh thank you again for sharing your story I know your vulnerability means a lot to me and I know to everyone who's been following your Instagram and listeners right now who might be experiencing something similar with themselves or with someone they know whether you're experiencing a health event or caring for someone who is it's important to take care of yourself and find support and I think that's a lesson from what I heard from you today uh, today's guest has a personal and professional experience doing just that When we get back, we'll introduce you to Luana Ojala, the former CEO of Caring Bridge, and hear what she has to say on the topic. I So Appreciate You is brought to you by the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundation. With Brits in St. Paul, we are Minnesota's largest community foundation and the partner of choice for thousands of donors, nonprofits, and community organizations. The foundation aspires to create an equitable, just, and vibrant Minnesota where all communities and people thrive by inspiring generosity, advocating for equity, and investing in community-led solutions. Visit spmcf.org to learn more. And we are back and excited to welcome Luana Ojala, 
Before we get started, though, Luana, we have three quick questions for you. You ready? Okay. Yeah, thanks for having me, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. All right, so we have three quick questions for you. These are our icebreaker questions. Um, Dress shoes or hiking boots? Ooh, dress shoes. Okay. More appetizers or another dessert? Appetizers. All right, you're my gal. All right, (laughs) movies or books? That's a tough one. I would say movies. All right. Now you're Nadezhda's gal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We are three for three on those. (laughs) So before we dive into our conversation about navigating health, our caregiving, uh, work and life, we want all our listeners to just know a little bit more about you. And so, you know, you are a fantastic community leader who has passionately served others. I am not going to list all of your accolades (laughs) because it's so long and you just so impressive. We're fangirling over here, um, but just going to name a few. You were a top 500 uh, executive by Minnesota Monthly. The Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal named you one of the most admired CEOs, and Twin Cities Business Magazine listed you as one of their top 100 people to know in 2020. And I mean, seriously, folks, if you don't know, like this is just barely the tip of the iceberg. So thank you so much for joining us today and being our first guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. And right back at you to two fantastic women who also serve our community. And I'm also very grateful to be invited. So thank you. Aww. So in addition to everything that Nadez just, just read, you've also held important, the important role of a caregiver. Um, and Nadez and I have this belief, um, Luana, that we end up doing what we do because of what we may experience growing up. Can you let us know what led you here? Yeah, and I do want to reflect on what you just said, too, because part of it is I think women are, in particular, are just good at doing what needs to be done. So I said, Mm -hmm. I'll just add that on top of what you said. But, you know, my parents were immigrants from the Philippines, Mm -hmm. and in our culture, um, as you age, your family cares for you in your home. And so that was just what I always knew. I experienced that growing up when my grandmother had got Alzheimer's and lived in her house with our family until it was not safe for her to do it and she needed other care. But even though I'm first generation American born, I've always understood that as an expectation in the family to care for your parents um, as they age. So I would say that's probably the number one thing growing up that was in my mind, not as a, uh, it was an expectation, but yeah. it didn't feel like a burden because I just, that's what I knew. I, I always thought that was like a like an oldest child thing. Like a thing. firstborn expectation? Yeah, because that, I wear that badge of honor of, you know, you and I actually have similar backgrounds, Luana, because I, I grew up in a multi-generational household, saw my mother be a caregiver, my grandparents who lived with us, as you know, and uh, definitely influenced, I think, the work that I do now in communities. So thank you for, for taking a moment and sharing that, yeah. sharing that story with us. And I'll us. also just give a shout out to the firstborns because, Thank you. Yes. My mother um, was firstborn, and then my sister, who was firstborn, really missed her calling as like a professional caregiver. Just seeing her and interacting with her as we cared for my dad, which I know we're going to talk about, um, she was just a star. And the firstborn does have a special quality of just knowing how to just get it done <laughs> and rallying the troops to make sure it happens too. At least in my family, that was true for sure. Thank you. I feel seen. I know. So do yes. I, right? <laughs> well, let's talk about that caregiving yeah, experience. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, first of all, the context of it was mm-hmm. that my my mother passed away when I was 25 at the age of 59. So she had been gone from our lives, at least here, yeah. um, for a long time. And She so, was young. You were yeah. young. I, I was young. And so now I'm almost 50. And about two years ago, um, in the summer of 2019, my father was diagnosed with late stage for prostate cancer. Mm. He was told he had four to six months to live. And so after that, he came home from the Philippines where he lived part of the time and spent his remaining time in the United States where me and my three siblings live. Um, and he lived with us and he lived with my sister and he lived with my brother for a while. And But we really just all shared that expectation going up that that's what it was, that was what was going to go down. And we were really, really lucky because he had much longer than months. Um, it was yeah. more like two years. And in that time, we tried very hard to ensure we made decisions as a family that gave him the highest quality of life based on his terms, which we didn't always agree with. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, trying to let him guide. And I have to say, you know, that some of the examples of that included, you know, we, we certainly wanted to manage the pain, but we didn't, he did not want to be medicated all day and sleeping. Yeah. He wanted to be able to eat with us. He wanted to be able to travel still. He wanted to be able to... Um, do the things that he still enjoyed. So a lot of our decisions were around that priority of the highest quality of life. So you, you said something. The- oh, oh, sorry, Luana. You said something there that, that I want to get back to, that you were going to let him guide you. And, and I'm curious as to, you know, who made this decision and was he fully on board to move here to the United States to you be know, with all of your he- siblings? The gift that we received of losing our mom earlier Mm. in our lives as siblings was that it became much more open to talk about Uh, death and dying and what was going to happen next. Yeah. I recall that a few Christmases after my mom passed away, my father decided to declare between courses at Christmas dinner that he only wanted to live till he was 80. And it's like, it was a very blunt communication. And of course, when he turned 80, we thought, we thought you were done now. (laughs) But um, but he, he, he lived to, you know, he lived to be 83, but it was, it made it more open to discuss because we had had that experience. But, you know, I certainly know a lot of caregivers who go through this process where there hasn't been that open communication, which makes it much more difficult. We were able to have that because we had a previous experience where it was very surprising when my mom passed away at that age and, it was a very short time between the time she was in a coma and passed. Yeah. And we were all, you know, not expecting that to happen for a long time. So, but I hear that pain in some caregivers' voices when they go through that experience because the communication about what the expectations are are not clear and, and frankly, not, there's not a lot of comfort in discussing it. No, there isn't. Well, you know, what I find really fascinating about what you're saying is, you know, you grew up with a culture of sort of knowing that caregiving was going to be inherent. But, you know, when I think about, um, you know, American culture, it's not necessarily clearly inherent, right? Multi-generational families aren't necessarily the norm. Did you ever feel, you know, being here a tension between that, between sort of the American culture of like, well, why don't you just, you know, hire someone or do something and yeah. and the choices you all were making it as a family. Yeah. So you're highlighting one thing I should definitely say, which is important to say that I do come from a position of, of several privileges in my life. One is that I can afford healthcare. 
mm-hmm. and I, we were able to afford health care and the very crazy medical costs in this country, but that's for a different probably segment. <laughs> that could that could be a whole season of shows. Yes. yes. I think the other the other privilege I had is that I was married to someone who really was aligned in my thinking and he is a white male. Um, mm. so to be able to have those discussions about what I understood growing up was an expectation and then the reality being faced with it, well, you know, we're both generation X sandwich generation taking care of two teens at home at the same time. We were very aligned, and he was very willing to take on the cultural expectations I had, which is not always the case in interracial couples. So um, those were two pieces of um, the pie that I think have given me the perspective I've had, but very, very difficult in a lot of relationships because I recall talking to my husband about that. We've been married 20 years very early on Mm -hmm. in our marriage and before our marriage, that this is how this is what it was going to happen. You know, my mom never met my husband, but he knew I had a father who had lost his wife. And so there were a lot of conversations very early on um, before marriage. Um, yeah. And I think that was critical because the communication was very open. Um, okay. And, I, you can't see me, but I'm nodding profusely yes, because I had that same conversation with my now husband when we started dating because this was a role that I had in my family and it just was not going to go away and I didn't want it to go away. Right. So, so providing care to my mother and, you know, she's so young and fit, but there are just responsibilities that you don't want to have to explain that you need to go and take care of. Right. So, yeah. And to his, and to my husband's credit, it was not an argument. It was a conversation about what was important to me, um, how he could support that. And what could he do and was capable of doing, or how could he learn? And in the end, I mean, my father basically <laughs> loved my husband, I think, probably more than the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This is how I think I feel about my mother and my husband. So my, my husband sees my mother every day. Yeah. Every and day. He, yeah. So and I could do this. And the other third, the other third privilege I had is that my husband is also a stay-at-home father. Mm. So while I was working full time during this caregiving, very intense caregiving experience the last few years, he was the one home. Yeah. So my father actually saw my husband more than me during the day. Of course, pandemic life changed the whole dynamic with um, both help and responsibilities and um, so many things. But anyway, I, I. I hear what you're saying, and I, I completely understand. It, it's really difficult for families to have these discussions and then complicate that with the dynamics that go on in a marriage that are also really difficult for people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the what you're saying is almost a little bit opposite than I think, you know, some of the norms. I've, I've seen a figure, it's like two-thirds of caregivers are usually women. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you aren't, but that your husband can be so involved as well. Um, and and often the, the women do more personal care. They put in more hours. And, you know, obviously that's going to affect you professionally. That's going to yeah. affect how you're able to show up in your opportunities. And it sounds like you, you know, you had the privilege to still be able to maintain those things. But, um, you know, in, in, your, in your work, have you encountered or in your experiences uh, other caregivers who really are challenged by balancing that the emotional weight and labor of caregiving with having to it, show up yes. in other places? Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I've got lots of thoughts on how employers can do this better. But I, I think what I'd also say is women, this is a huge generalization, but it's been true in my experience with knowing other women who are also caregivers. I've always encouraged people to ask for the thing that they need help with. Mm. So, so hard, time, though. It's, it's so, so hard. hard we, we create our own situation by not. Yeah. asking for help. You're absolutely uh, right. And I'm going to give you like a very specific example. You know, my son is 17 years old and there were things I asked him and my daughter who's 13 to do with um, with their grandpa that you know, a lot of teens don't do. But guess what? I needed to be in a meeting. <laughs> yeah. I needed to be somewhere. I had to get something done and I can't be in two places at once. So there were times I was I would ask my teenager, "Can you do this thing for Lolo?" who's downstairs um, mm-hmm. because I don't want him to be alone and he's going to try to do it himself and it's dangerous. And so explaining to them was helpful to me, but also a really gift for them. And I'm yes. going to say, especially my Absolutely. son, who is learning at this age, the importance of being part of the caregiving support mm. that, um, that is going on all around him. Um, so it was a gift. The whole experience was really a gift to our whole family. Yeah about what it's like to come together and support each other. Because it wasn't just supporting his grandfather. It was also supporting me as, um, you know, the one who's the, um, still working full-time while, while I'm also doing this work. Um, so, sorry, I, I felt it was really important to talk about the role that kids can play and yeah. the gift and the benefit that they can get of being part of that experience as well. No, I'm so glad that you brought that in because I think that when we talk about caregiving, we we talk about it as if it's going to be this thing in the future, and we we often aren't good at caregiving because we don't we don't start right, we don't model it, and we don't see that um, in front of us enough. And so the fact that you bring in your kids and that they can see how you and your husband are also modeling, supporting each other in supporting your father, I think is um, probably a lesson we don't, we don't talk about enough, we don't see enough. No. I, I also want him as a young man to normalize that women, although they're capable of doing a lot of things around here, yeah. <laughs> are not going to be the ones that can do it just because they can. Yes. They need help. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, back to your question, which I do want to answer about how can... How are employers doing this? What could they do? Mm-hmm. I want to just, there's a fantastic study um, that came out of Harvard Business School, that pro- Harvard Business School project called the Managing, Managing the Future of Work, and it was published in early 2019 by Joseph Fuller and Manjari Rahman. And I had a chance to meet Manjari and hear her speak about this study at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving in Atlanta. This is back in the fall of 2018, which, of course, in this world we live in now feels like a million years ago. Yes. Indeed. The study was exactly understanding this question. What, what can employers do to help employees manage their caregiving responsibilities? And I, I largely agree with what the study says. And so there's four key things that came out of that study and they studied organizations across industries, size, uh, revenue, geography, women-led, um, men-led. Um, you know, the four things are, one is to have a supportive culture. Mm-hmm. Um, two was to have a framework for balancing career and life paths. 
Three is completely be aware of the hidden costs for caregivers oh, when absolutely. you think about benefits and compensation and things like that. And then finally, boost your caregiver productivity by supporting them in, in, in different ways. And the bad news is nobody was doing it really well. Yeah. <laughs> but the good news is I think the study was really um, encouraging to read, which it's pretty, it's pretty short. It's it's like 22 pages, and I encourage you both and anyone listening to read this thing um, because it just gives a lot of good ideas about things companies can do, like look at their benefits packages and think about what's their caregiving leave. Is there maximum flexibility in PTO? Yes. What are they doing to give mental health support, which is so much a far, part of this caregiving um, experience? And what are they doing for child care support specifically for caregivers? So I, I think there was some really good findings there, and I bring it up because I think it's just, it, it really jolts the way we might think about how we support them beyond saying you can take extra time off, because there's just so much more to it than that. Absolutely. Like, it's it's not enough to, to just dole out a few benefits, because the reality is there are negative health impacts to the caregiver, yes. the, the mental right. and emotional strain and toll and that's going to sh- impact how you show up at work and what your productivity looks like and when you need space. And I think in some way, we all got some visibility on that during COVID mm-hmm. because all of a sudden our lives were turned upside down and people who had outlets of daycare and school all of a sudden were being sort of active daycare or active caregivers during the nine to five. Um, and do you think that, you know, all of us collectively going through that experience might help employers see a little bit better what they ought to be doing um, as to those four points that you mentioned? Oh, you know, I think if you're an employer and you are not doing that right now in the moment of where we are in the world with this pandemic, when employees are really starting to think differently about what is the relationship they both desire and will tolerate from employers. Um, You know, there's been a lot of talk about this great resignation and people reevaluating is this the uh, employer of choice for me? If, if you're not thinking about these things, then you're going to continue to have these issues with the retention of employees, which so many employers are experiencing right now. And candidly, in a virtual world, the development of trust with employees is so critical to get right. Yeah. And the, the things you used to do when people were in the office aren't going to work as well. <laughs> So you better find other ways to make sure that that your programs and your benefits and your culture is supporting people in ways that they're going to continue to expect, um, regardless of whether we're back in the office or not. Um, So I think it's a mistake for employers to, to, to miss out on this opportunity. And, of course, I'm very hopeful that this is making organizations reevaluate what can we do to keep talent um, working on the things that are really important for, for the business. So when I was, oh, go ahead. I was going to add one other resource yeah. that I found personally very helpful when I was oh, going yeah. through the, it was before, before my dad was diagnosed with late stage cancer, I had read this book that was very influential on how I thought about caregiving. I didn't know it at the time, but it's, of course, you both probably know this book. It's Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. And what the book taught me is that, um, how to manage, he, he writes about his relationship with his father and, yeah. and being the caregiver for his father and as a medical doctor, how did he approach that very clinically, 
versus really asking the right questions to the patient, which is, what is important to you? Mm-hmm. What does quality of life mean? It was a very influential book for me, so I just wanted to mention that as well. Uh, I have a question for you, Luana. So I know you, so in the, the four items from the article that you highlighted, I think the fourth one was boost care for caregivers. Is that right? Boost caregiver productivity. Oh, so what can okay. you do to make them more productive? What is it resources? Is it, is it um, you know, technology? Yeah. Is it um, flexibility with, with hours? I mean, there's all sorts of things that fall into that category. Mm. Um, but specifically looking at it for somebody who is managing caregiving and it's, you know, it's both kids and, and older adults as well yeah. or whoever in your family is, that's, that's important to you that you want to make sure they get great care. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This was a really, this is a really deep conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Luana. Thank you. I really appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening to I So Appreciate You. You can find us on Facebook at I So Appreciate You Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at So Appreciate You. We'd also appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. And if you like our show, be sure to follow I So Appreciate You on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Have a question or a topic suggestion? Email us at podcast at spmcf.org. Thank you for listening to I So Appreciate You.